Hello and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the foods that make it from the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether. Every week on Ox Tales, we pick one paper from the Food Symposium's long history and bring in its author to help us tell their story. We hope you're enjoying season two so far. You can find out more information about our guests and the Oxford Symposium on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. Also on our website, if you're able, you can make a donation to support this nonprofit educational podcast. UK listeners can donate by texting OXTALES20 to 70085. That's O-X-T-A-L-E-S 20 to 70085. As always, you can support us by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks so much, and on to today's story. There is a stereotype that foods of the Arctic are raw survival foods, instead of complex dishes made with considerable skill. In today's story, scholar of Arctic foods Zona Spray-Starks examines why the latter is true and talks about the interplay of climate and family that shape the cuisine of the Inupiat people of northwestern Alaska. And how, for Zona herself, the road to reconnecting with this cuisine has been one of self-discovery. My name is Zona Spray-Starks, and I have been in the food business for 40 years, and I write about food, and uh, I love to eat it. Zona has been cooking, teaching, and writing about food for decades, and for the last 20 years, about the foods of her childhood home, northwestern Alaska. Well, my parents went up to Alaska in the 20s to escape the Great Depression of 1929. My, my uncle was a banker. And he knew there was going to be a depression coming. The bottom dropped out and the market crashed. And my uncle and aunt, my mother and father, because they were college educated, they could work for the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and teach school. So they went up to Shungnak, a small Inupiat village where Zona and her brother were born. But growing up in the village, Zona knew she didn't quite look like her brother having a darker complexion, and features her white mother would often make mysterious comments about. She did make comments about uh, my heritage. She would talk about uh, my hair. It was It's dark. Uh, and she would say, you know, the men who rock, rock their baby's cradle, they never know if that baby is really his or not. As a child, of course, Zona didn't know what to make of such cryptic comments. I just presumed I was white and over time, let them fade to the back of her mind. And then they left Alaska. I left Alaska when World War II broke out. That was in 1943, and I was uh, five. So we came, my parents grew up in Oregon, and so that's where we went back and went to school there, got married, and... uh, She and her husband moved around the United States, where Zona studied sociology and culinary arts, before eventually opening a successful cooking school in Ohio. They had kids, and the kids grew up. She and her husband moved to Florida, and she wrote about food. And then when she was in her 50s and her father was dying, an old friend from Alaska came down to visit and pay his last respects. My friend was still living in Alaska, and he was a pilot. 
So my father said, and here he is on his deathbed, my father said, I want you to take Zona back to the villages where she lived above the Arctic Circle. And how do you say no to a dying man? That's pretty tough. So 10 days after my father died, we, we were in a plane heading above the Arctic Circle in a little two-seater. At 55 years old, Zona was returning to her very first home, to the shores of the Kobuk River, which runs hundreds of miles through the rugged low mountains and plateaus of northwest Alaska. We went back to Shangnak, which is, which I consider my home, and that's on the Kobach. We also went to Kayana, which is where my aunt lived, and we went to Norvik, and they are all on the Kobach. They're each about 40, 40 miles apart. But um, we flew into those villages and visited all my friends that I knew as a child, and um, and that's how... I was told to go visit this man in Shongnak. Her aunt, a person who had been close with her parents, told her rather cryptically that she better go hurry up and pay a visit to one of the families in town. My aunt had told me to go to this family's home, and the elder, who would have been my mother and father's age, um, was dying. And... They said, oh, if you want to talk to him, you've got to go see him right now. So they said, go upstairs, go upstairs. So I went upstairs, and it was a huge attic. And all over the floor were sleeping bags with villagers sitting. And they were waiting for this man's this man to die. Um, and he was right in front of a window, and the light was streaming down on him. It was uh, like one of these pictures you would see of the Christ child with the light streaming down on him. And so I went over to him, and there was a woman sitting by him. And it was a woman that I had played with as a child. And I said, would you ask him if he knew my mother and father? And I gave her, their names, and she looked at me quite surprised because she knew them. They were her teachers. So she um, she t- asked him, and his his eyes came open. He his eyes had been closed. His eyes flashed open, and his hand came to his mouth. He desperately tried to talk. But he was so close, so close to death that it was very difficult for him. So I just um, took his hand and put it back on his chest and gave him a kiss and walked away. And you would think I would have felt self-conscious. I felt so at home. I have no idea. Back home in Florida, the visit would not leave Zona's mind, where it mingled with the memories of her mother's hints about her paternity. So uh, my husband said, well, why don't you just have your DNA taken? So I did, and lo and behold, I come out. Um, well, I knew I was part Native American Indian, 
But I came out 25% Asian, which is Anupia. Could it be that the dying man she visited in Shangnak was her biological father? No, I don't know where that came from, but um, <laughs> well, we, we, we know it came somewhere. But my mother is no longer living, so I can't pin her to the wall. And uh, so we just have to conjecture. Through all of this, Zona emphasizes that while the DNA test was a helpful tool to piece together the puzzle of her life, it has no authority as to whether or not she belongs in Shungnak. I don't think it matters blood-wise. It matters on how long you have been with them. Uh, One of the things that I learned by going back and spending time is one of the highest compliments to give is to go visit them, but you don't have to talk. You just go visit. You just go. So Zona went. She's gone back dozens of times and still does, even now in her early 80s. She spent summers at fish camp with her friend Esther, listened to stories, and learned how to prepare fish and other traditional dishes. So she would tell me stories. She would explain the cooking techniques. She would talk to me about how people think of one another, how they relate their relationships. But you don't get that by going in and visiting. I have spent literally months with her, and I still go visit her. And over time, Zona grew to understand the world of flavors and techniques developed by generations of Inupiat women. I have been able to understand the techniques of the Arctic cuisine, and I do think it is a cuisine. Zona has found that when she talks to most people about traditional Arctic foods, there is still a prevailing belief that everything is raw and unprocessed. But raw can be a loaded term, that in addition to meaning not transformed by heat, can also have racist connotations of meaning uncivilized or even unhuman, a narrative introduced by the early European explorers and has proven hard to get rid of. But Inupiat foods, despite sometimes being not literally cooked with heat, are definitely not raw. The food was often cooked, but in perhaps in a different way that, than we think of cooking. Uh, number one, it was dried. A lot of food was dried. And it could be reconstituted either by dipping the the pieces in, well, it usually wasn't boiling water, but hot water, because they didn't have enough fuel, really, to boil anything for very long. But they would moisten and warm these this sub-dried fish or dried dried mammal of any kind. Drying would normally happen in the summer months, when there were fish caught in large numbers, and when berries and plants were picked fresh and needed to be stored. Zona herself witnessed this during her summers with Esther and the other women. But in winter months, when larger animals were hunted and their flesh required storing, freezing temperatures and a variety of in-ground cold cellars were an Inupiat cook's best friend. Just as with heat, there are dynamics when using cold to cook. In the same way that slow braising is different than flash frying, the rate and degree to which something froze could be carefully controlled by an expert cook lending a wide variety of flavors and textures to the food. Well, things that were frozen would 
partially ferment, or they, we would call it aging, because they didn't freeze. It took a while to freeze, so that by the time a product was frozen clear to the center, it may not have frozen. It may have aged or fermented. Um, and also, many of these things were frozen in um, coal cellars, and they didn't always register a minus 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Consequently, things didn't freeze, or it took quite a while to freeze, or they might freeze and they might thaw. So fermentation added variety and flavor to the ubiquitous seal oil seasoning, while freezing itself added textural variety. For instance, one of the most beloved dishes is a thing called quok. And that is a frozen fish or mammal. It's a protein. It would be frozen, and then the good cook would know exactly when to slice it and eat it by when she could put a finger on the substance and it had thawed enough just to make an imprint. But it was still full of icy crystals, and the the woman would always slice it very thin and serve it to guests or the family. And it was a very sensuous dish. The technique used to make quok is, surprise, known as quoking, the skilled art of bringing flesh to a semi-frozen texture that transcends both rawness and cookedness. And in fact, the taste is very different when the meat is almost thawed, still a little bit frozen, but it's almost thawed. Frozenness, well, it is a, a way of altering food. And yes, cooking is a way of altering food. But freezing does the same thing. And despite how different these cooking techniques may look to an outsider, the Inupiat cooks are employing the same food chemistry principles in their dishes as, say, in French cooking. It's just that it uses different base materials. Consider the Inupiat version of ice cream. They started with fats. It may have been solid fats. And we start our ice cream with fats. It's just that ours are liquid. We have cream and eggs and... And they used seal oil and reindeer tallow. So it's, they were both beaten like crazy. And they, bo- <laughs> and they both come up the same way. They both have a silky, lovely texture. To make this dish, also called akatak, the cook's hand becomes the utensil to incorporate air into the fat. Like if, if you would put your hand palms up and pretend that you're going to hold a ball. You would have your fingers pointing up in the air. That would be like the whisk. And that's what you, what you use to beat the, this dish with. And you do that for about 45 minutes until you're exhausted. And the, and the heat of your hand warms it up, makes it fluffy. Most of Zona's knowledge on foods like Akatak comes from personal experience, which is really the only way to learn. Most of the research Zona has done via written records, the majority of which happens to be from the notebooks of early Arctic explorers, has yielded only passing mentions of food. 
Well, yes, but it was like, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack when you when you're doing research because that wasn't their intent. They just happened to mention, oh yes, you know, we're having dinner tonight and it's going to be blood soup. And then once in a while somebody might mention how it was made, but normally food was not touched upon. The hunter was glorified, not the cook. Yet, at the time that the explorers weren't writing that much about blood soup, survival depended very much on the cook. So much so that, according to Zona, young girls would often be tested for their skills as food preservers well before they reached the age of marriage. I, I think it was the case for most uh, young girls to go to live with a future husband's family. And she was to uh, be inspected and I've never heard it. I've never read anything about uh, turning that coin upside down and having the girl's family inspecting the boy's family. Usually, if the boy was from a, a family that the father was a good hunter, normally they consider that the boy would be a good provider, a good hunter, a good business partner, because marriage was a business. Couples often struck arrangements with other married couples or families, which helped them negotiate travel in different regions. These arrangements were called co-marriages. Co-marriages were established usually at trade fairs, and they went on for generations. So that was probably the most solid business arrangement of the times. But the the co-marriage was established between someone from two totally different areas. And in order to go into another territory, uh, and those territories might be separated by rivers or lakes or whatever, usually by rivers, you had to have permission to go into those areas. And if you had a co-marriage and a brother so to speak, you could go hunt in that brother's family's territory. And say, if a famine came to your co-family's area, they could come to yours. The family might say, hey, let's go to whoever, Joe, Gerald. (laughs) Uh, And that territory might not be having a famine. And so they would have food and they would enable the family to live. It was a system that allowed assurance of sustenance within a variable and sometimes harsh climate. But more than just food was shared. Co-marriages often resulted in blended families that operated together for multiple generations, as long as everyone involved agreed. The, The arrangement was always agreed upon by man and both man and woman of both families. So the woman had to agree that yes, this man can come into our territory, and yes, I will prepare his food and his clothes and and have sex with him if that was called for. Now, a lot of people in our cultures go, oh my goodness, that just that's terrible. However, sex was not nearly as Victorian, straight-laced. <laughs> wasn't Victorian at all in Alaska. 
In fact, if you had a child out of wedlock before you're married, there was no stigma to that whatsoever. If you, but once you were married, you were to be monogamous. However, if you had these arrangements, that enabled people to skirt the issues of monogamy, which goodness knows every society in the world has a problem with that. So this was really a very rational way of of solving the problem, I guess, of the monogamous marriage. These were complex social institutions and changed from place to place, so it's not helpful or useful to generalize any further. But what they show is that food is always a force shaping what family, social, and economic systems look like, something that is true everywhere in the world. Uh, And again, once World War II popped out, the co-marriage kind of disintegrated, and so did these trade fairs where somebody would, would travel for six months to. So even though they're mostly a thing of the past, the co-marriage is part of a view on family that lives on today. One that says, family is defined by something other than blood. And so for Zona, in her 20-plus years spent making trips back to Alaska, she has occupied that space allowed for her, between blood and not-blood family. I have spent a lot of time in Nome. Uh, I have a dear Anupiat friend there who, I am not a relative of hers. When I first went, I was a friend. Then, in a year or so, I was a cousin. The last time I went, she introduced me as her sister. And that's not because of old age. It's how she feels. What makes Zona family is the fact that she keeps coming back, spending time with her friend, growing their relationship. A relationship that started off with food and turned into something deeper, and in some senses, much more urgent. That's correct, I have. I've, I've learned a lot from, uh, well, it's all from the elders. And I, I am just so afraid that our source of information is going to change considerably when the elders die, because... I, I, they are not writing, and many of them don't write. We're going to lose a lot of information. So for Zona, her life's work isn't only about culinary techniques anymore, fermenting or freezing. It's about the responsibility to make sure she does her part to carry on these traditions into the future. In that way, it's about family. Thanks for listening to Oxtails. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Huge thanks to today's guest, Zona Spray-Starks. You can find her symposium paper, Drying and Fermenting in the Arctic, Dictating Women's Roles in Alaska's Inupiat Culture, in the 2010 Symposium Proceedings at oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash proceedings slash downloads. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, and mixed by Thomas Krauss. Editorial oversight is provided by Fiona Sinclair and Naomi Duguid. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Oxtails is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Food Symposium. If you like what we're doing and you want to help us make Season 3 a reality, 
please consider making a donation on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk, and listeners in the UK can donate £20 by texting the word OXTALES20 to 70085. That's O-X-T-A-L-E-S 20270085. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendening, Thomas Krauss, Eurider, and Hit of the Week Orchestra. Sounds accessed from freesound.org and archive.org. To learn more about the symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Oxford Food Simp and Instagram at Oxford Food Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us and please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week with some more Oxtails. Tales.